We're going to have a prayer and then we're going to begin. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, I ask that as we discuss one of the controversial issues in the history of Adventism, that you'd bless my mind with accuracy and memory, with tact and skill and communication, that you'd help us to understand. And I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Today we're going to be talking about the history of what is called the shut-door doctrine in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. If ten years from now, three or four of you have left the Adventist Church, it's very likely that one or two of you will be very convinced that Ellen White is a false prophet and that somewhere along the way this story will have played into that conclusion. Although certainly not the way I'm about to tell it. The shut door. Let me explain it, then you'll be able to write it. But it, It's like when you shut a door. Shut door. Once upon a time in a land far, far away, there was a Millerite movement with some 50,000 adherents, give or take 50,000. I mean, 40 to 100,000. You know what I mean? That's the reference of what there was. In the eastern United States, when they had the great disappointment of October 22, 1844, it was very difficult for them to make out what had gone wrong? Miller and Litch and Himes for a while took up this line. They said that our prophet, prophetic prediction was based on human chronology and that it's possible that human chronology could have been off by days or weeks or months or a year or two and maybe it never would have been discovered. For that reason, we should just wait until Christ comes. But as time continued and nothing in particular happened, that position became less and less tenable until that group, the primary leaders of Adventism, eventually concluded that nothing particular happened on October 22, 1844. They concluded that no fulfillment of prophecy happened on October 22, 1844. It's natural that they would conclude that because they didn't see anything happen. But before they concluded that, William Miller with the rest, especially soon after October 22, took a slightly different position. They concluded that Jesus had closed up his priestly ministration on October 22. That probation had closed that they had done their work for the world, and now it only remained for them to wait. You can understand how William Miller came to that conclusion. 
Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. So what happened in the days of Noah? Did Noah preach up until the day that it rained? Almost. He preached up until he was led into the ark with a bunch of animals, and then the door of the ark was shut. And did the rain start immediately? There was a period of time when they were shut in and the wicked world was shut out. And Jesus said, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So Miller, with others, concluded that since Christ had not come, it must be that, like in the story of Noah, they had been shut in. Didn't it say that in the parable of the ten virgins? That after the cry went forth, the, the wise went with the bridegroom, and the door was shut. And what happened after the door was shut? The unwise virgins came and said, open to us. And the answer was, the door is shut. I don't know you. This idea that probation had closed was the shut door theory. Adventists in general believed it for several weeks and some for several months. But as time went on, the doctrine began to lose its popularity with most Adventism, including with the leaders. But you remember, we talked about Hiram Etzen some. He and F.B. Hahn and O.R.L. Crozier, who concluded that Jesus went into the most holy place. And with that conclusion was the idea that he had closed up the door to the holy place. They got that partially from the message to Philadelphia, which says, I have set before you an open door and no man can close it. But it indicates there also there's a closed door and no man can open it. In Maine, where Ellen White was living as a 17-year-old girl in Portland, the Adventists in that area were losing their confidence in the shut-door theory. That is, in the idea that anything happened in 1844 as a fulfillment of prophecy. And as they were beginning to waver on the fulfillment of the 2300 days, and maybe the whole thing was a delusion, Little Ellen Harmon had a vision. And in that vision, she was shown that the midnight cry was from God. That was the cry that said, Go ye out to meet him. And that Christ had entered into a new phase of his ministry in 1844 and that the door of the holy place was shut.
The remarkable thing in her vision was that she was saying that October 22 was really a fulfillment of prophecy. The band generally believed it. It's what happened next that is troubling to some. James White and Joseph Bates concluded that William Miller had been right about probation closing on October 22, 1844, and that the reason he didn't hold on to it is because he didn't know about Christ going into the most holy place. So the Adventists that were Sabbatarian began teaching that, now they were just becoming Sabbatarian, but even before they were Sabbatarian they were teaching this, that probation had closed in October 22, 1844. Then they accepted the Sabbath. And for a while, you know what they were called? Shut door seventh day or shut-door Sabbatarians, or shut-door Seventh-day people. That was their title. Because they were, what were the prominent aspects of their teaching? That Christ had really gone into the most holy place in October 22, and that we ought to keep the Seventh-day Sabbath. Listen, they weren't teaching this for three months, or six months, or nine months. It looks like some of them are teaching it for six years. During that time, Ellen White had a number of visions and revelations that related to the shut door. Now I'm going to summarize for you the charges against her and then reply to them individually. You have the paper. I gave you this paper, didn't I? The shut door briefly. Huh. Maybe you're the only one that has it, Stephen. That means it's in my room waiting to be handed to you. So I'll give it to you tomorrow. I thought I already had. So you don't necessarily have to take notes in what I'm about to read to you unless you just like to write things down to remember them better. The charge is that Ellen White taught that mercy for sinners closed in 1844. This she did as a result of her first two visions. The result was that many Adventists lost their burden for lost sinners. Ellen White was wrong. Instead of frankly admitting her error or sticking to her guns, she cowardly turned coat and claimed that she had never taught the shut door. This was a lie. That's the charge. What are the, what are the points in the charge? That Ellen White was wrong, that she taught the church that there was no more mercy for sinners, that because of that many stopped doing evangelism, or some did, and that later when she changed her position, instead of saying, whoops, I goofed, she said that she never changed her position and she had never taught the shut door, which makes her a liar. And if that charge was true as stated, I would think you would have to conclude that Ellen White was a false prophet. 
I think you would have to, and I think many have. I don't conclude that, and I think the charge is entirely false, top to bottom. Let's just go through it a piece at a time. First of all, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And look in the first few verses for something about people who have tasted the powers of the world to come. Does anyone see anything like that? Tasted the powers of the world to come? Hebrews 6. What does it say, Miss Owens, in verse 5? It's speaking about a certain class that have been part of God's work on earth and they've tasted the power of God. They felt the power of God in doing His work. If that describes any class of people, it would describe those who were part of the seventh month movement in 1844. If you've read about it, the power of God was manifested there. Would you read for us the verse just before that, Miss Owens? And the verse just after it is to renew them again unto repentance. Seeing they crucify the Son of God to them afresh and put him to open shame. If I could put the thought simply, if God is working mightily and you cooperate with him and see the power of his work in favor of the truth, and then you turn away from that truth and call it darkness. Your case is very much like Lucifer's. You've been the witness of God's power and truth and turned away from it. And what power now is going to convince you that you're wrong? So what does Hebrews say about that class? It's impossible to what? to renew them again into repentance. Listen, Ellen White taught, and I teach, and Hebrews 6 teaches that there was a large class of people who tasted the powers of the Word of God in the Millerite movement, who when they turned their back on it, their case became as hopeless as hopeless can be. There's another class whose case becomes hopeless. It's those that hear the truth taught with power and resist it and resist it and resist it. This is why William Miller thought the mercy for sinners closed up in October 22. You can read him writing about it in the weeks after. He said that the day after, it was like the whole arsenal of Satan turned on him. That the wicked scoffers were making fun and laughing and... And these were Christians of other faiths. In short, those who resisted the power of the simple gospel presentation and the truthful teaching of William Miller 
every time they resisted it, they were hardened. And when they were resisted it right up to the very end, under the climatic warning, the world is going to end next week, the world will end tomorrow, they resisted it until their case was hopeless. Now this is the point. Several of Ellen White's statements between 1844 and 1850 make reference to those two classes. The wicked world that rejected the Millerite movement and to the Adventist who had been part of it and had turned and hard away from it and were fighting against it. And she speaks about both of those classes as being perfectly hopeless. I buy into that. I expect soon that there will be a huge class whose case will be entirely hopeless. And why will it be so? Because they will have rejected the power of the preaching of the third angel's message. They will have resisted it under the power of the loud cry of the fourth angel. They will have resisted it under intense power until that resistance caused them to commit the unpardonable sin. And will God condemn the whole lot of them at one time? You know, probation will close and it will be hopeless for the whole bunch. So it doesn't surprise me so much if it's already happened in history at some point. But Ellen White never indicated in any writing that it had happened for the whole world or even for all of New England or even for all of the people who had been called Adventist. Never said anything like that. So that this whole argument that she was teaching that there was no more hope for sinners is a supposition based on a twisting of statements about those classes and a couple other statements. There was another statement where she was writing about the Fox sisters. Do you all know about the Fox sisters? The developers of spiritualism, modern spiritualism. They heard the rapping sound of Mr. What they call him? Something foot. Split foot. Mr. Splitfoot. And began to communicate with Mr. Splitfoot by knocking and he would knock back and it was just the beginning of open spiritualism. But spiritualism was strangely grew not like it is now, an entirely separate religion, Eastern in nature, it grew fast into the Christian church. So that there were hundreds of Christian ministers who were also famed spiritualists. That is, you could be a good Methodist and a spiritualist at the same time. It was considered to be an evidence of the power of God. And do you think spiritualist ministers had revivals underneath their preaching? Well, you know, they sure did have revivals. Nellon White speaks about the revivals, and she indicates, I think what I hope you would expect the same thing, that the revivals were not truly converting anybody, but that they were producing children of the devil. Does the Bible ever indicate that misguided evangelism can produce children of the devil? What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He said they cross land and sea to make a proselyte, and when they've made him, they make him twice the child of hell as themselves. So some antagonists have taken the statement Ellen White made about those ministers and the revivals, pulled them out of the context of the Fox sisters, and have placed them as if Ellen White was saying that all the revivals going on 
after 1844 were all false revivals. Well, anyway, she never said it, never implied it, never indicated it, and only by twisting can it even look that way. Why do Adventists fall for these kind of things? You know, it's because we've harbored doubts from other sources, and then when we're confronted from all this, the thought doesn't occur to us that honest people could be making such belligerent lies in such succession and such volume. And the devil has a trick that goes with it. He usually doesn't have a belligerent liar bring it to you. He just has the belligerent liar originate it and then delivers it to you through the medium of a very nice person. You'd think, how could she tell such lies? Anyway, I'm getting off my topic and I want to go back to the history. I want to read to you from a certain, if I can find it, a certain vision. It's called the Camden Vision. But the page I thought it was on doesn't have it quite here. So I'll just tell you what it says. In the Camden Vision which is written out and has at the end of it signed Ellen White. We're told that we should not pray for the wicked. The date on it is 1951, seven years after 1844. We should not pray for the wicked, that Jesus does not want us to pray for the wicked. That when he prayed for the wicked, it helped them and blessed them and that it could help them. But now their case is hopeless and it wouldn't do any good to pray for them any longer. And it goes on that way for several sentences. It's really, at least to me, looks quite apparent in the Camden vision that probation has closed. Have you all read the Camden vision in early writings? You're right, no one has. It's not in there. In fact, you'll never find the Kenman Vision in any book published by Adventists except for ones that quote it in a book like this, Ellen White and her Critics. That's because there's no copy of the Kenman Vision extant in the entire world that has Ellen White's handwriting on it. And it, it was never published by an Adventist. It was published by one of the leaders of what is called the Messenger Party, which thing we might get to today, but I kind of doubt it. That was an ex-Adventist published this vision. The thing is, Ellen White was in Camden in 1851. The thing is, she never said anything like the things written in this vision. The thing is, the leaders of that movement ended up showing their wicked character within a few months after this vision was published. In other words, it's a fiction. But if you go to ellenwhite.org, that anti-Ellenwhite website, you'll find the Kendon vision there. 
with no mention of its fraudulent character. What about that thing, that argument that Ellen White said she never taught the shut door? Here's the reality. Ellen White frankly admitted that she had believed in the shut door, like the rest of Adventism. She had. But she never wrote it. Does the Bible indicate that prophets have had faulty ideas while they've been telling the truth? The apostles, for example, had faulty ideas while they were telling the truth. John the Baptist had faulty ideas while he was teaching the truth. Peter had faulty ideas while he was teaching the truth. And the summary of the thing is that prophets many times misunderstand their own visions. Have you read that in Peter? That they diligently inquired into the things that God had spoken through them, and they couldn't perceive what, what it meant. To me, it's an incredible argument in favor of Ellen White's inspiration that though she believed those things, she never taught them. Because everyone else around her that believed them did teach them. And if it was your primary doctrine, don't you think it would come out in your writings if you believed it? Several years into this situation, a man by the name of Brother Arnold, you should really remember that, began teaching that just as there were sacrifices morning and evening in the daily service, there was also a sacrifice morning and evening on the Day of Atonement indicating that salvation was available even after 1844. When Brother Arnold first wrote about that, Ellen White's husband was teaching quite the opposite. And you know, she could have written a letter of rebuke to Brother Arnold. But you know what she did? She said that she... She told her husband that she had been directed that he should study with Brother Arnold. And that's how James White began to come out of his mistake about the shut door. What about this idea? Why didn't God tell Ellen White it was a mistake? For years. To me, the answer to that is so easy compared to how it is to other people. How lazy would we have become as Bible students if every time we had an error, God would give a vision to Ellen White to tell us what the truth was? Would that have cultivated significant Bible study in us? You know, I wouldn't have taken a second look at Zechariah 14. I would just wait. Do you understand what I'm saying? What did God do instead? 
he taught through the prophets that we should study the Bible. And when by Bible study we learned about the Sabbath, he confirmed it with a vision for those who were doubting. And when we learned about the beginning of the Sabbath being at sundown, he confirmed it through a vision. And when by study we began to understand the Godhead, he confirmed it through a vision. This some 40 years after we'd been teaching falsehood on the doctrine of the Godhead through many of our prominent leaders. So what's the point? God never intended that prophets would be an alternative to Bible study. And you know Adventists have missed that lesson still. There's a reason why Ellen White does not write about many of the most difficult passages in Scripture. The fact is they're difficult because we don't understand them. And Ellen White didn't write about them because we hadn't studied them yet. summary is, it's no surprise to me that not until someone did serious Bible study, namely Brother Arnold, that God did not speak up to indicate our error on this point. But as soon as someone had done the Bible study, God let it be known that there was someone around that had done his homework and that we ought to pay attention to him. And so we came out of the thing. But, I don't remember. And when you know, I've probably read it three times today, but there's a lot of history in this. Just in this one book, there's 70 pages on this topic, and it's small print. There was something else that happened interesting. Before we had come out of the mist, there was a meeting where there was a man preaching about the truths that we hold dear, and someone in the audience believed what he heard and wanted to join the group. He wanted to be baptized. But the preacher was very hesitant to even consider baptizing him. Because, don't you know, it's too late. There's no more salvation for sinners. Ellen White was there. God told her to tell that man to have hope in God and and it would be all right, and he could give his life to him, and he'd be received. So he did. His name was J.H. Wagner. That's right, father of Elliot, the one you've heard about in 1888. Now I'm going to look at my notes and see if I missed anything. Excuse me just a moment. Yeah, when I was going through the Elmite websites, I was very disappointed in the lack of honesty in one of the objections. The objection indicates that Ellen White denied that she'd ever taught the shut door. Here's how it looks on the website. Early statements where Ellen White talks about the shut door being true. The shut door, the shut door, the shut door, then line, and then a statement indicating that I never taught the shut door. All four statements are accurate quotations. And looking at that, the reader goes, and it looks like Ellen White was a liar. But with just a little bit of context of the I never taught the shut door, it would have appeared entirely different. 
Ellen White confronted this objection against her writings while she was still alive. It didn't come up like after she died. And what she said was that she never taught the shut door that there was no more mercy for sinners, but that she did teach and still teaches and still believes with all Adventists in a shut door. And she quotes Revelation 3, a door that has been shut and no man can open, and a door has been opened and no man can shut. And goes, and goes on to describe what I told you at the very beginning about a door being shut for those who have sinned away their day, day of grace. She very frankly says what she did believe and what she did mean and what she does mean and doesn't deny it in any way. But it's made to look like she just flat lied. And you know, to make something look like that in that situation is a flat lie. Which is no surprise to me, because even in the Beatitudes, full of blessing, 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 there's couched a little thing about prophets, where it says, Blessed are you when men speak all manner of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. How do men persecute prophets historically? They speak all manner of evil against them falsely. You just ought to know that, so when you see something, you won't think, oh, it's an objection. It must be somewhat legitimate. Part of the objection against Ellen White and the shut door comes from the fact that her early statements, the ones that talk about the shut door, were edited several times, and some of the statements were never reprinted, and others were reprinted with omissions, leaving out those particular passages or sentences. All which thing is, is boiled up to look like a cover-up on the part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. How can I explain that to you where you can see it as simple as it is? In the Old Testament, there are some passages that are difficult to understand. In the New Testament, some of these passages are, are illuminated with new revelations that make them more simple to understand. If a prophet writes something and it's misunderstood and then as the prophet learns more and is shown more, is it legitimate for the prophet to rewrite it so that it cannot be so easily misunderstood? What I'm trying to say is the simple thing that happened is when Ellen White believed in the shut door, the false theory, the vision she was shown about the truth theory, that the door was shut for those two classes she wrote it as she was shown it. And it could be taken either way, if you were inclined to take it either way. But later, she wrote it so it couldn't be taken either way. That happens so many times in Scripture. There's a hermeneutic 
that relates to this that you judge statements with greater clarity, excuse me, you judge statements with less clarity by those with greater clarity. That's a good hermeneutic. All right, I'm going to go a step further and talk about a Bible study. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10 and looking at verse 10 and 11. Revelation 10 is a description of the Advent movement, the experience of the Advent movement. It's sandwiched between Revelation 9 and Revelation 11. Time-wise, that puts it between the 6th and 7th trumpets or in harmony at the time of the 7th trumpet. In other words, near the end of verse history. Well, you can get that right from Revelation 10 itself. I think it says in verse 7 that in the days when the 7th angel shall begin to sound, the mystery of God shall be finished. Does it say that somewhere in, around verse, six, verse 7? So you have the timing of the thing right there. Look down at verse 10 and 11. Revelation chapter 10 and verse 10. And I took the little book, that's the book of Daniel, out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. You know, when food's in your mouth, you chew it and swallow it. When words are in your mouth, you spit them out. Here we have Daniel as honey in someone's mouth. It's a very interesting metaphor. You chew it, you swallow it, and you teach it. That's what Adventism was doing. It was chewing, it was swallowing, it was teaching the book of Daniel. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. So when he was chewing on it and teaching it, did it have a, a very cheering message? It's a cheering message to think that Christ is coming back soon. Very cheering. But what happened when it got to his belly? You know, it was extremely bitter to find that he hadn't come and wasn't going to be coming in the next few days at least. So how did the church relate to that? Listen. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Revelation 10 verse 11 is virtually a prophecy that the Adventists would stop preaching after they came to understand the book somewhat better. And it's also a prophecy that they wouldn't stop preaching forever. That they'd eventually understand that they were still to continue preaching. Revelation 10 is a prediction of the shut door doctrine and its demise in the Adventist movement. But more than that, the great disappointment is the subject of a number of prophecies. I'm not going to go into them out loud, but I have gone into them, on, gone into them in this paper. You'll find them in Habakkuk 2 and in Hebrews chapter 10 and in Malachi 3 
as well as this passage we were just looking at in Revelation 10. In those passages where the disappointment is predicted, there's an indication that the judgment will explain the questions that we have. Is there any other passage of Scripture that connects a message to preach the gospel to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people with the idea of judgment? That's the first angel's message. Revelation 10 connects the Adventist movement to the preaching again of the first angel's message announcing the coming of the judgment. Okay, let me summarize everything I've said and I'll be done with this lecture. I just realized that for those listening to this, the fact that there's a handout is not going to help them understand what's in those chapters. So I changed my mind. I'm going to talk about it a little bit. In Psalm chapter 73, Asaph is perplexed by the fact that the wicked are prospering. He can't understand why God is allowing it to happen. He nearly loses his Christian experience. He says that my feet well nigh slipped. He said, I, I didn't want to talk about it out loud in front of the children, in front of God's children because they'd be offended. You've known people who have had questions like that too that were afraid to admit it. But they wondered, why does God allow these things to happen? Then Asaph says, Then I went into the sanctuary, then I understood their end. So what was God's answer to Asaph's question about justice? It was the sanctuary. Then in Habakkuk 2, in Habakkuk chapter 1 and 2, you have the same question. Habakkuk is saying, God, how can you allow this evil to go on? These wicked people are prospering. God answers, I'm going to send Babylon to punish them. Habakkuk says, yes, I'm sure you're going to do that, but the Babylonians aren't righteous either. They also need to be punished. How come you allow this evil to go on and wicked people to triumph over those more righteous than them? And then Habakkuk begins to realize that that is a very arrogant way to talk to God. And he becomes much meeker. And in Habakkuk 2.1 he says, I'm going to stand in my watch and put me in the tower and wait to see what God will say to me and how I will answer when I am reproved. Habakkuk 2.1 answers the question, what does it mean to watch? It means to listen to what God's going to say to you and to watch yourself how you answer when you're reproved. Then Habakkuk chapter 2 goes on. God explains that Habakkuk should write down a vision, make it plain upon tables that he can run that reads it. So... And then he's told that the vision is going to speak at the appointed time and that it's going to appear to tarry, but it's not going to tarry and they should wait for it. And all this begs the question, where is there a vision that is about judgment, that fits itself to tables, that puts an appointed time for the judgment, and that when people understand it, they should run? Is there any vision like that in the Bible? That's the book of Daniel. So especially the vision of Daniel 7 and 8. Those that read it should run in Daniel 12. It's for an appointed time. It's for a judgment. 
and it, uh, it gives itself so conveniently to charts and tables that people made up charts from it. And what does God say about that vision to Habakkuk? He says, it's going, that vision is going to appear to tarry, but it is not going to tarry. And when it appears to tarry, he says to wait for it. But how can you wait for it when it's not tarrying? It's because you don't understand. Habakkuk 2 predicts the great disappointment. It predicts that the judgment would begin, that people would be looking for Christ's second coming. And then predicts that many would fall back by that verse 4 that says that the just will live by his faith, but if any man draw back, Hebrews 10 goes on to say he draws back to perdition. The summary of Psalm 73 and Habakkuk 1 and 2 and Revelation 10 is that God foresaw the great disappointment. He intended it to separate between those who were righteous and those that were not. That's what it says in Habakkuk 2, that the righteous stand, but the others go back. That he intended that, that he knew that there would be a a ceasing for a time in the preaching, but he would let the church know it was time to preach again. That's all very comforting to me. It shows me that the investigative judgment was not a face-saving device, but a fulfillment of prophecy. And I'd much rather be part of a fulfillment of prophecy than to believe in a face-saving device. Amen. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you will bless the truth that you've put into Adventist history. That you would guide those that are here in their study, that they could find what is true. We are dependent on you to be our teacher. I ask that you would do that very thing in the name of Jesus. Amen. More thorough written material on this topic will be available at BibleDoc.org sometime soon, if it's not there already. BibleDoc.org.